one big question, which is, can being spiritual, if we can call it that, not religious or, or anti-science, in fact, it's the awe of the science that, that leads, I think, to the deepest form of spirituality. Can you as a leader be spiritual and, and believe the things that we just said about how nothing matters in a nihilistic sense and still be a f- killer? Can you still show up to work every day with the hunger and the attitude of a winner every single day? Welcome to the Best Self-Management Podcast. I'm David Hassel. And I'm Shane Metcalf. Me and David have been working together along with our co-founder, Nazar, and all the amazing other people that are a part of 15.5 for the last seven years. And we are not the same people that we were seven years ago. One of the things we're a big stand for is like, how do we actually embrace the whole person and understand that can we support someone in thriving in their whole life? And if we do, then they're probably going to contribute more at work. Your mission is to attract the best talent, retain your high performers, and maximize everyone's potential. Welcome back to the Best Self-Management Podcast. We explore how to create highly engaged and high-performing organizations by helping people become their best selves. We believe that work is where people become their best selves, and so we're exploring all the facets of what it really takes to make that a reality. Very excited to welcome to the show, Matt McInnes. Matt is COO at Rippling, where he oversees business operations. From 2009 to 2018, he was the co-founder and CEO of Inkling, a mobile learning platform that provides on-the-job training for companies, including McDonald's and Whole Foods. Inkling was named one of the Fast Company's most innovative companies and raised over $100 million in funding before being acquired in 2018. On a personal note, I'm really excited to connect with this guy because We've been following some of his journey. We've taken inspiration at 15.5 on some of the things that you guys have been doing at Rippling and some of the innovations and strategies. And just before we started recording, got to jam out a little bit on Fred Kaufman's conscious business and what a source of inspiration that is. So I'm really excited to dive into what does it really take to build a conscious company in 2020? Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> yeah, great to have you on. And Shane, you're wearing the right shirt today. For those of you listening, he's got a, what does it say? Consciousness? Uh, it's, a, it's the Coca-Cola logo, but instead of Coca-Cola, it's consciousness. It's the real thing. That's great. You know, again, this idea that the universe isn't made up of matter, the universe is made up of consciousness is uh, one of my foundational premises that I'm operating on. Oh, we can get into that for the whole hour if you want. Let's talk about whether the universe is conscious and, and the implications for how you deal with compensation bans at work. <laughs> right. Connecting the dots of the universe's consciousness to compensation, performance, and uh, hiring and firing would be a pretty interesting thread. What led you guys down the route to finding Fred Kaufman and his, his conscious uh, leadership model? I mean, the story of me personally discovering conscious business is pretty simple. I had a board member when I was at Inkling who had kind of recommended it a few times to me in response to me engaging him on tough personnel questions like, oh, man, the situation's difficult. I don't know what to do with this employee. I don't know what to do about this partner. And I give him credit for this, you know, rather than helping me figure out the right answer to that particular situation, he would guide me toward tools that would help me solve the underlying issue, like giving me a framework with which to approach problems like this instead of solving the tactical issue. 
The partner's name is Brian Schreier from Sequoia. I give him a ton of credit for much of my growth as a CEO. And so Conscious Business was one that he had recommended to me a few times. And I was down in Palm Springs and I was by the pool and I'm pretty sure I was drinking and I uh, had my Kindle. And I thought, okay, he's been recommending this one for a while. And I think I just finished one. And so I thought, you know, fuck it, I'll pick up this one. It looks really boring. And it was one of those books where you, when you tuck into it, Within probably a chapter or two, you're like, oh man, man, why didn't I pick this up sooner? Like, why didn't I just so instantly clarifying for a whole bunch of things for me as a CEO of a growing company, uh, you know, and, and, and transformative for me, not only in terms of the way I was making decisions at work, but also transformative for me at home with my personal relationships. And I really remember sitting on that chaise by the pool in Palm Springs with the Kindle. That moment is kind of seared into my head because I had kind of an emotional reaction to it. And so we started using it at Inkling with great success. We have Conscious Business Reading Club there. We now have Conscious Business Reading Club at Rippling. The purpose being that you can establish a common vernacular among employees so that we can all hold one another accountable to conscious behavior instead of unconscious behavior. You know, from that moment, I started reading the book and it clicked for me uh, to today. This has been a thread. And to be honest, like my husband, who's the chief customer officer at Guideline, the 401k business, he does conscious business with his team. And so a lot can be traced back to that sort of seminal moment of, of cracking the book open by the pool. That's amazing. You know, we're, I mean, we're big adherents to conscious business and practicing internally in 15.5 and using our own set of tools. And I don't know if we've talked so I mean, we've talked about it on the show from time to time, but I love the fact that, you know, we have that common bond. Have you come across also the conscious leadership group by chance? Yeah, I've heard of a lot of these. I know of the Conscious Leadership Group. I haven't engaged it. One of the things that I love about just even the beginning of this thread is that if we start with the idea that work can be a place where we become our best selves, you know, more than any other force in our lives, it it is going to shape our attitudes and our experience. And so why not build a company where the default end result is somebody becoming a happier, healthier, more fulfilled, more competent version of themselves? And so I'd love to understand, how is this book, how is Conscious Business, we don't need to spend the whole show talking about Conscious Business, but how has that informed the type of culture and the type of intention for the culture that you have? You've made an assertion yourself a few times here that I think is really important, but easy to just sort of like let it slip by in the conversation and not like directly address, which is... I'm going to put this slightly differently than the way that you put it, but I think we're saying the same thing, which is that you you go to work every day as a means by which to express your values. In other words, work is not a means to an end. Like we don't go to work because we want to make money. We don't go to work because work is like the universe cares about the work we do. I mean, that's just like, nope, that's silly, right? We all know that anything we build at work is transient because we are transient. Like we as human beings are transient. We're here, we're gone. Whether what we did matters is kind of irrelevant. It really just comes down to kind of how we feel about the time that we've spent while we're alive. And so why do we go to work? Yeah, of course we go to work to, to like get money because we've got to pay the bills. <clears throat> there are very practical down to earth reasons we go to work. But like when we get into flow and we feel a sense of deep satisfaction in our work, we're not sitting there going, yeah, this feels so good. I'm killing it. That paycheck, ah, oh, that paycheck on Friday. Like it's just, that's, that's not what we're thinking about. We're thinking about the fulfillment that comes from that and that we feel good about what we've done and that when we go to bed at night, we reflect on what we've accomplished and whether we did some good for the people we worked with or the people who are our customers or other stakeholders in our work. And so that's why I think work is an expression of our values. If we value honor, if we value transparency, if we value discipline, if we value 
excellence that like work lets us express those values. And Conscious Business is one ingredient to that. But actually another book that I would cite is one of my all-time favorite books called The Big Picture by Sean Carroll, which is actually a, sort of a tour de force exploration of all that we know from about everything from quantum mechanics through classical physics into like chemistry, biochemistry, biology, into you know sociology and then ethics and then all the way at the top philosophy and like the nature of the universe all in one book you know and he just he does such a magnificent job of tying it all together and one of the most memorable moments for me in that book is this description of what happens with respect to entropy like people sometimes make the joke like oh this doesn't matter because of the heat death of the universe and like yes that is absolutely right the heat death of the universe as we understand it is inevitable and therefore everything we do today is worth nothing in that grander scheme so why do we care right And there's this really beautiful passage where he talks about a cup of coffee. Imagine, if you will, a mug. On the bottom is black coffee, and then there's like a layer of wax paper, and on top is cream. But you take the cream and you pull out that wax paper, and for just a split second, it's kind of the big bang of that piece of coffee. There's this like period where these two things are just separated by you know, molecular force for just a, you know, an infinitesimally small moment of time before which it all begins to mix together. And as it mixes together, it swirls. And then at the end of that process, if you leave it overnight, you just have a cup of sort of brownish liquid where the milk and the coffee are just really evenly distributed. And let's just call that the heat death of the universe. Okay. So we go from the big bang to the heat death. And in the middle is all of this stuff that happens. Well, what happens when you pull out the wax paper, you get these swirls. There's just these patterns that are just really difficult. No computer today can really model the complexity of even that cup let alone the whole universe. But the, the stuff that's in there swirling around and around and around on the way to that full set, you know, that, that lowest point of entropy, or is it the highest? I don't know, one or the other. Those swirls, that's us. The trees that are absorbing energy from the sun and like doing their thing and then dying, that's just the swirls. And we are also just swirls in the cup. And I think it's such a beautiful thing because it frees you from the worry, you know, it just sort of gives you perspective on like why we exist, magnificence of the complexity of everything that's around us, and keeps you rooted in the inevitable reality of where we're all headed. And to me, that's like, that's perspective that helps me every time I get, you know, worked up, every time I have a tendency toward unconscious behavior, like you know, acting on my anger impulsively, for example, I'm able to zoom out and say, just a swirl, like I'm just a swirl. This is just a swirl. Like we are all just swirls in the cup. And for me, like the big picture gave me that perspective. It, you know, the, the title of the book therefore becomes clear, right? It's very fitting. It's like you really can see out at that altitude. And once you get that grounding and you come back into something like conscious business and you say, okay, what is the connection between us all just being swirls of energy in the universe on its trajectory from the big bang to, to heat death? You know, how does that tie back to like acting with integrity? And the answer is that we can now view the transience of our existence as an excuse for us to focus on those things that let us sleep at night. And they're more important than whether we made our number. I just love everything you just said. I was actually just typing. I, I ordered the book and I think, I, I knew that's what you were doing. I saw little like, subtle arm movements. I'm like, I, it's already on the way. I feel like I'm responsible for a few copies of that book being sold. Listening to folks who have had a relationship with death while being alive is one of those things that puts into perspective as opposed to fearing the inevitable. Yeah, you know, you have a reminder that flashes on your phone. I don't know if you still do this. Would you share what it is? Because it's such, it's so good. You and everyone you know and everyone you love will, will eventually die or will die. 
you know, something about that wording, but just to re-anchor myself, you know, when that comes onto the the phone, you know, there's so many times when unconsciously I'll just swipe it away and I won't even think about it. Like I actually have to choose to put my attention on it and that's uncomfortable at times, but it gives more kind of prescience to the, you know, to the moment. And, and also for me, you know, I live in Sedona, Arizona and, you know, I will often stop on my way into the house because we're a dark sky city and just look up at the sky in total awe and wonder. Yeah. The stars do that for me too. The stars are my, like, they're my escape from anxiety. Yes. When you fathom the scale, someone just told me recently that even in just inside our universe, we're in a universe that's 10,000 light years wide and 100,000 light years, maybe it's 10,000 deep and 100,000 wide. So to get from one end of our universe to the other would take you 100,000 years at the speed of light. When you, when you fathom the scale of that, I mean, it's very hard to, to really stress about anything. So this is where like people will step in and criticize this conversation because we are absolving people of the need to give a shit. Right, you're just nihilistic. And it excuses moral behavior. Uh-huh. Right. This is stargazing absolves us of you know our earthly responsibilities. And but I think you pointed to another path to that where it then becomes about living our highest values. And I think you talked about the word fulfillment, which is something that when we started out in our space, a lot of people were talking about building technology to have people feel happy at work. And I think there's a very distinct difference between happiness and fulfillment or fulfillment and satisfaction. And I think true fulfillment and satisfaction comes with living, you know, in accordance with the things that help us sleep at night and that have us be living a value-filled life and a conscious life because you end up with real meaningful, deep relationships in this time that we're here. Well, so at the risk of like traipsing into territory that starts to sort of become a critique of the entire segment in which 15.5 operates, I will proceed with probably only limited caution, to be honest. (laughs) There's one big question, which is, can being spiritual, if we can call it that, not religious or, or anti-science, in fact, it's the awe of the science that, that leads, I think, to the deepest form of spirituality. Can you be spiritual and view yourself as this transient thing where you, know, you, you appreciate that you're a swirl in the coffee and still have a performance culture where you... Or maybe the bigger question is not just, can you still have a performance culture? Can you as a leader be spiritual and and believe the things that we just said about how nothing matters in a nihilistic sense and still be a killer? Can you still show up to work every day with the hunger and the attitude of a winner every single day? And of course, there's plenty of examples where it's true, but it's something that you kind of have to explicitly reconcile, I think, because you can be mistaken, right, for arguing against anything mattering. Absolutely, right? Because it's like, when you come from this approach, it's saying, wow, let's actually take inspiration from the cosmos. Let's take inspiration from the deep awe and wonder of life and then build a company that's informed by that while simultaneously raising the bar of what actually performance is. Because I think that a lot of what this conversation, where it leads is how do we build performance that's actually based on intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation? That's where the rubber meets the road. How do we get people to view their work as an opportunity to get into flow and to actually play? I always refer to, not always, I should say I haven't always, but I do now consistently talk about my work as a game and I want to be at the top of my game. And people will say, you know, you treat it as a game. Like this is my life. How can you say that? It's like, do you think 
that LeBron James takes his work less seriously because he understands that it's a game? Of course not, right? Like the game is his game and the game of business is my game. And yes, it is the game through which I express my values. It is the game through which I achieve fulfillment. That doesn't, great, awesome. Like that doesn't mean, I don't have to have some need to prove myself. I don't have to have an ego problem or, you know, I don't have to have a hole in my soul to go and kick ass at the game of business. I'm actually, it's quite, quite compatible to be self-actualized and turn around and, and be aggressive and, and demanding in my work. And so I sort of gave the warning that I was going to traipse over into the territory of performance management software. And I'll, I'll do that now. The worst thing a company can either consciously, the worst, worst way to do it. The worst thing is like they consciously develop this The second worst thing is that they allow it to happen, and that is a culture of entitlement. And to me, a culture of entitlement in a company is where the individual employees lose sight of the mission of the company. They lose sight of the trade-offs that must be made at the individual level in the name of the group success and believe and come to believe and, in fact, are nurtured to believe that it's about them. But it is not about me. I'm replaceable. It's not about the, any individual employee up to and including the CEO ever. It is always about the team. And by definition, a team wins together. And it is extraordinarily unlikely that the, that the way they win together is that each person wins individually. Okay, so I, I completely agree. And you know, it's something that I've thought about. I mean, I think, I think entitlement is one of the most distasteful qualities that we have as humans. And especially as a culture, and a business culture, especially a technology company culture. How do you steer it the other direction? Like what is the opposite of entitlement and how do you how do you actually through systems and process encourage it in that direction? So, super simple. It is either about what you give or it is about what you get. If it is about what you get as an individual, that is a culture of entitlement. If it is about what you give, what you contribute, it is a culture of performance. And If you don't give enough, there are consequences, as opposed to if I don't get enough, there are consequences. You really have to sort of think about the the, the miles apart those two mindsets are, right? There's another company that operates in the world of performance management that shall remain unnamed that is not 15.5 that recently launched a, a product capability that, in my opinion, it gamifies job levels. It like has an animation when you make it to the next level as if that's going to happen every week, you know, as opposed to every month or every quarter or every year, which even on those scales, it probably will not happen because for you to move from a level six to a level seven, for you to move from senior manager to director, whatever it is, it's a rare, wonderful event. And I don't need software to belittle it by giving me an animation with confetti that says, you've made it to level eight, like that. I'm so glad we, we were about to build that into our roadmap. And I'm so glad no, I'm not, I don't think we were. <laughs> no. How do we actually elevate the beauty of something like that and not uh, make it trite? There are places where software should help people with good process. And that's great. There are places where software can be mistaken for process. And like you end up putting the cart before the horse and you miss the point. And I think with respect to performance management, as an example, you know, fundamentally, the most important work that happens in performance management in developing a performance culture where you hold people accountable to nearly impossible standards, which in my opinion is the minimum standard, because they, you know, people are always 
and this is something I learned from Parker, our CEO at Rippling. I think this saying is his, and I love it. People are almost always capable of more than they think they are. You have to set the impossible goal and then hold them accountable to achieving it. And, and like eight or nine times out of 10, they surprise themselves with what they've done. And so, you know, the, the hard work of developing a performance culture, holding people accountable, having difficult conversations, terminating people who are going to find success somewhere else, all of those difficult steps that go into building that culture and, and suffering what are inevitably difficult consequences of holding the group to that standard come through the hard work of the manager at the interface with the employee. Well, well Matt, you know, that's why we're positioning 15.5 as manager effectiveness. Like we're going all in on how do we equip managers to be the leverage point that makes the difference with the team. And then not just provide the software and the structure, but also the education and guidance alongside that. Because right. the mindset and the skills that come with that. And I just want to make a note, you know, you talked about this idea of like, we can get into this nihilistic, nothing matters. But I think there's the paradox of nothing matters at the, at the grand, grand scale and everything matters. And we got to hold that paradox. And you talk about the game of business, which I think in the game of business, results are the scoreboard. And there are very, very high standards in certain industries that we play in. And so if you're going to play that game, you've got to have extraordinary results. And ultimately, I think when you get into this conscious leadership, I don't think aggressive means, you know, being aggressive in business doesn't mean leaving a trail of dead bodies in your wake interpersonally. The important point here is like you're being, you set aggressive goals. You don't behave aggressively. But a lot of people think that you need to behave aggressively. I just interviewed, we're interviewing for uh, hiring for a COO role. And interviewed a woman who is extraordinary and went through, you know, very, very famous uh, Silicon Valley company who, you know, she also disclosed that, you know, there was a bit of a cutthroat culture. And one of the compliments that she was given was, I don't know how you achieved so much without a string of dead bodies behind you. Her whole belief was, you don't not have to be kind. You have to be direct and deliver candor truth with kindness. You can hold care for people as much as you hold care for performance. And that's what 15.5 is really all about internally in terms of our ethos and what we're trying to communicate to the world and, and make that distinction. I think conscious business and the practices in it are the path to learn how to do that. Yep. I, I think the, the term conscious, we've used it a lot, but we haven't really defined what we mean by it. And I think it's, a, it's like an important point. We were all born into the same evolutionary context, like, or I should say our ancestors were all born into an evolutionary context that's quite different than the one that we have today. They had to fight for their food. And like, if there was a carcass on the savanna and they needed to go get a mouthful of meat, it wasn't about, oh, everybody get a little bite here. It was like, whoever fought the hardest and maybe killed the person next to them to get to the meat was the one that survived. And then like, fine, but... You know, the, the, the instinct to be selfish, the instinct to be me focused, that persists because it's at the limbic level, right? It's like programmed into the very most basic wiring of our brains. And so when we show up to work, if we don't pause and reflect on the patterns that we're using in our interactions with other people, we will default to those behaviors that are unconscious. They're just the things that are pre programmed when we're born. Yeah. Those are defending our perspective, right? Which is arrogance. Those are being impulsive and acting on our emotions rather than being thoughtful and considering what we really value. I think a, a common theme of everything that you're describing is actually fear. That in the process of trying to survive and forgetting that life is a game or business is a game that we can play at, we move into a fear-based survival strategy 
And I think that's where we have so much of our business culture, the center of gravity is rooted in fear. Yes. And that's why, you know, Matt, I'm really excited to turn you on to a couple of models from the Conscious Leadership Group. One of the ones we use internally is just a very simple idea of self-locating and developing the skill of locating what they say, are you above the line or below the line? And when you're below the line, you're coming from a state of fear and protection. There's a problem. It's someone's fault, maybe someone else or your own. It's the victim, villain, hero triangle that we, you know, a lot of people fall into. And then when you bring some curiosity and trust, you move above the line where problems are a space to learn and get curious about, right? So, so I'm actually, I'm going to correct myself. The conscious leadership framework, we, we just used it for the whole management team. And I wasn't remembering the name because the term conscious leadership is is pretty generic. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yes. when you said the above the line, below the line thing, and now I remember that I I did see my sort of above the line, below the line score and also that of my colleagues. And it was pretty interesting. But I think like having these frameworks and these little kind of mental shortcuts give us the tools to, you know, kind of circumvent that unconscious default behavior which in many cases maybe right. help preserve us individually, but aren't beneficial for our relationships and the, the group success. I want to make one point on this that I think is super important that, that people often don't think about in their interactions with employees and even like with respect to how they view themselves, which is that emotions, we use this terminology, we use this, this, like, this language in Western culture at least to say things like you have to control your emotions, that you, you know, he's emotional, and like, you have to zoom out and ask the question, like, is that a rational way to describe emotion? Because when you think about it, emotions are not an output that you choose to sort of like let loose. Emotions are an input. That's right. Emotions happen to us. And then our conscious mind can decide what to do with them. I would even say that most people conflate the emotion. And I have a six-year-old, so I, you know, kind of st- I'm studying this a lot. You conflate the emotion with the reaction to the emotion, and what they see is the outward reaction. And you know there is a, a split-second moment you can choose a different reaction, but most times it just happens automatically. That's right. And I call that intercepting. Intercept the emotion. It is inbound to you. All the language that we use to describe, like, when we say like he was washed over with rage or he was washed over with sadness, where like there's a physiological reaction that you just you can't control. Your neck gets blotchy, like. Whatever's happening to you emotionally is happening, and you absolutely cannot prevent it from happening. You can then choose your reaction and create a feedback loop that makes it worse, or you can intercept the emotion and, and maybe dampen the feedback loop. And so you can control your emotions in that sense. But like the initial reaction to something is going to happen to you. And I think when we embrace that and understand it, we can reframe the whole conversation around conscious behavior to say, like, yeah, I felt anger, and I was with the skill I developed was to recognize the inbound emotion signal and like decide what to do with it. To me, the key difference between somebody who is like exhibits conscious behavior and exhibits unconscious behavior is that they're able to decouple the behavioral response from the inbound emotion and just like getting good at intercepting your emotions. And by the way, if you want to go there, like level two is intercepting them and loving them because like it's so useful to get angry. Getting angry is super useful. Getting sad is really useful. There's so much data in it. It's your intuition screaming at you. That's what an emotion is. And so like, anyway, the point being like, this distinction is absolutely the dividing line between people who can sort of master the concept of of conscious versus unconscious behavior, knowing that emotions are an input 
not an output. And I want to make it super clear that, you know, just in case, because I, I think you probably know this and it may not be clear, intercepting doesn't mean repressing them and ignoring them and denying them. It means feeling them, but choosing a conscious reaction. That's right. You know, again, you know, the, the bullet comes in and you grab it like the guy from the Matrix. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> and you look at it and you're like, what color is this bullet? That's the color of rage. I think it's fair to say that the business world in general, in a broad term, hasn't been a force of encouraging people to intercept their emotions. Damn right. I mean, American culture in particular is just like, you know, suppress, suppress, suppress. I want to talk directly to you listening in for just a moment. If you're enjoying these interviews, the concepts we discuss, and you're committed to equipping your managers to develop highly engaged and high-performing teams, there's some additional resources that we know can help. Access the forever free best self-management certification at 155.com forward slash academy for core management skills that unfortunately are not taught in business school. Visit 155.com forward slash services to sign up for our manager accelerator program to reorient your managers around the essential skills needed to conduct effective one-on-ones, offer meaningful feedback, and coach their teams to greatness. If you want exceptional software that integrates beautifully with our education and training, visit 155.com today. So as we go against the stream and we start to say, hey, let's build conscious business. Let's build companies where somebody comes in and in addition to the competencies that they develop and doing their job and maybe becoming a better programmer, becoming a better salesperson, they also develop competencies around intercepting their emotions, around having clearing conversations. How do you take accountability for your reaction, but also tell the truth and show up in a way that isn't uh, avoiding conflict. And so how are you doing this? Like rubber meets the road. What does this actually look like with your employees? How are you practicing this with the leadership team, but then making sure that it spills down and everyone has that opportunity? And, you know, since I think, you know, Shane, you as chief culture officer at 15.5 and what we're doing through Jenny Yang and her competencies work inside 15.5, I'd actually like to have both of you answer that question because we're both, I think, pioneering ways alongside a small group of companies who are doing this. And I think it'd be really useful for everyone listening to understand a couple different perspectives about how both of these companies are attempting to inculcate these things culturally. So why don't you start, Matt? Yeah, I mean, there's two questions in there. One was, how do I hold myself accountable to those behaviors? And the second part of the question was, how do I make it a part of the culture of the company, right? Yes. Surprise, surprise, like the first and the second are really closely tied together. It is one thing to quietly tell myself, I'm going to hold myself to these standards. It is an entirely different thing to get up on a pedestal or a platform or whatever in front of the whole company and say, these are the standards to which we will hold ourselves accountable And I am committing to you to be the best example I can be. Because when I make that commitment in front of the team and then I turn around and act like an unconscious hole, what's the point? It's just, it's embarrassing. You know, it's like, if you want to lose weight, tell everybody you know that you're on a diet. Because the social pressure, whether they say anything to you or not, the fact that you said it and then you turn around and eat a bag of Doritos is like, not a good look. So I tell everybody that I'm on, a, I'm on an unconscious diet, an unconsciousness diet. And then the thing that I, when, when we go through Conscious Business Reading Club, which in the company is the way that the most formal way that we try to bring this stuff to the, to the way we run the company. There are many informal ways. 
But the most formal way and structured way is we do Conscious Business Reading Club, and I'll describe it briefly, which is there are you know eight chapters in the book-ish, and we do one chapter per session. We do them, depending on where we are in the cycle, we do them either once a week or once every other week. And there are cohorts of like a dozen employees who get together, and there are various people who run those the ambassadors are the people who've done it once and are willing to lead it with another group. And so it's sort of a, you know, it's a pyramid scheme. But I personally am running four of those groups right now. I do two 45-minute sessions each week for a total of four groups. And what we do is we get together and we'll talk about ontological humility, or we'll talk about unconditional responsibility, or we'll talk about impeccable coordination. What's been fun is that like as more and more and more people in the company have been exposed to it, I've been able to sort of bring the language of, for example, impeccable coordination to all hands meetings where, you know, we had someone get up and say they were going to do something. And I asked a question in front of the whole company, when is that going to ship? And they said, we're, we're trying to get it out for Monday. And I said, I'm going to need you to make an impeccable commitment. What can you commit to right now that you know you can stand by? And it was kind of awkward because the guy had never been through conscious business and thought he was just being speared in front of the company and uh, it was okay. Um, but yeah, he made, he, made, he made an impeccable commitment. I said, hey, to so the conscious business warriors in the crowd, this is how it works. And it was just like a moment where... And then Parker, who hasn't been through it yet, but is going to and, and is excited to do so, was like, man, if this is what conscious business is, I want to, you know, I want to sign up. because He was he was so excited about it. Well, it's better, right, because people think conscious business is, oh, compassion and being soft on right. people and not actually having full integrity with your word. Absolutely. And that's it, right. People get it confused. And the truth is that like conscious business is about winning. It's just about winning the right way because winning the right way is just worth so much more than winning the wrong way. And well, and I think winning the right way is a win-win versus I think the dominant paradigm is win-lose. If I win, you have to lose, which is why we build company cultures where it's all competition and cutthroat. And if I want to get the promotion, I need to make sure you do not get the promotion. That's right. And I think for me, the, the last thing I'll say about sort of holding myself accountable is that I've developed tricks that I play on myself trigger words that I observe in the world around me. I think one such example is the one I cited, which is like somebody said, I'll do my best or gave an approximation or an equivocation about a commitment. And when I hear equivocations about commitments, I don't care if it's about how many M&Ms you're going to give me. Like the point is we don't make equivocated commitments. We don't do that. And every single time I hear those language, those trigger words creep in, we hope to, or I'll do my best. This kind of shit that is just like, a smear of conflict avoidance on top of something super important, I immediately wipe the conflict avoidance off and just go for the jugular. It's just like an instinct that I've developed through you know batting practice and it is batting practice. And, and so for me, like figuring out those like moments where those, that language, those instances that crop up day to day to day and having pre-programmed responses that sort of incite a positive reaction as defined by doing the right thing in the other person is like something I've built for myself. And then again, it's super easy once you're doing it externally to keep doing it internally. So if I ever catch myself saying, well, I'll do my best, I'm like, no, 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 no. Like if I were me in front of me, I'd get lanced right now. Do you have full buy-in with the rest of the leadership team? Has there been any process of, to get that or was it kind of already baked in? I believe, so no, I didn't do anything to get buy-in. Here's what I did. And this is, I think, really important, at least in terms of, my personal view of what's, what is actually effective in inciting organizational change. I'm not the CEO of this company. Parker is the CEO of this company. Parker and I have known each other since we were teenagers. And so I have a deep well of trust with him and him with me that allows us to function together as CEO and COO as, you know, in a way that I think 
is atypically good. But at the end of the day, like he started the company. And of course, as we all know, the founder is the dominant cultural overtone kind of no matter what. So I had a choice. I could come in with this book and be the conscious business Bible thumper and try to do it top down and, and kind of force it on people. Or I could come at it bottom up and just invite some people to it with confidence knowing that people are going to love it. And so what I started out with at Rippling was um, to do it just with my own team. At the time, I think that maybe quarter of the company that rolled up into me and <clears throat> did it with the individual contributors and the managers kind of in, in groups. And then I ran an, an NPS survey on it with the employees. The lowest score we got was eight. The most common score we got was 10. Everyone just felt like it was, you know, many people felt like it was, it was quite transformative for them in some. That would give you a hundred, hundred NPS. It was a hundred NPS. Absolutely. And then the survey and, you know, N equals 40 or something in that survey, it was a pretty good, pretty good sample size. And so when I did that, I just turned it back around and I put that deck up in front of the whole company. And I said, Hey, we're going to do this. Anybody else want to join? And, and a ton of people said, you know, started begging into the program. Then I said, well, based on this, like we're going to get all the managers. And so now all the managers in the company are doing it. But many individual contributors from outside of my organization have begged into the program. And so as it turns out, things that are awesome tend to be pretty contagious. What did we say? Hope is contagious was an Obama quote. And now COVID is contagious can be um, Trump's. The good ideas, the things that are irresistibly contagious are contagious. And I think conscious behavior, inviting people to feel like they can win and that they can love themselves at the same time is a pretty damn inviting concept. And so my approach to this has been to let it take its natural course bottom up and it's it's worked out so far. What a great model and a testament to, to what's possible. And I, I, I really admire your leadership in that. Yeah, well, it's a good book. What, what do you see is next? You know, culture is a verb, right? It's not something we can, hey, cool. We did with the book club once and now we're all going to be conscious in our behavior, right? It, it takes con- continual injection of energy to avoid the, the negentropic forces that will have a culture devolve back into self-centeredness and uh, survival, self-preservation. Yeah, so this is an analogy that is not well-formed, so you'll, you'll, you'll forgive me for anywhere where it sort of comes off the rails, but like there's gravity, you know, and things that get sucked together and sucked together and sucked together because gravity pulls them together, but like they can also just sort of drift apart. You think about you know, a star, a star, I'm getting into physics again, but like a star that just sort of can detonate in a supernova and there's kind of not much left. There's also a neutron, there's like a neutron star afterwards. There's also black holes where you've, you've passed a certain threshold of matter density where like from now on, anything that comes in within a distance of that black hole is going to sucked into that black hole irrevocably. And that black hole is going to exist to the best of our knowledge, kind of forever. And the question is like, how do you get past that critical mass where the the culture has become so strong. The gravitational pull of your culture has become so strong that the event horizon is growing and growing and growing and growing. And the more people come into your company, the more they hit the event horizon immediately and they get sucked in. If you don't have the strong pull of a very well-defined culture, then the whole thing can be overwhelmed and by the new additions of people. Like We're a hyper-growth company, right? When I joined the company, we were 80. That was a year and a quarter ago. We're now almost at 300. You think about like, how many new people have been added into that system over that time? And the question is, how do we make a black hole of awesomeness where like you know, the minute you come into the company, you're just at the event horizon and boom, you get sucked into our culture. You don't even have a chance at yanking our culture in an unconscious behavior. And the way that I think about that is like, it's a constant tightening of the screws. And the word that I use for this is ritual. The Catholics are really good at this. 
The Jews are really good at this. Like religions are awesome at reinforcing from generation to generation a pretty consistent set of behaviors and values. And the question is, what can we learn from that system? And I think it's the ritual. And so at Rippling, every single all hands, we do what's called kudos, where someone holds the baton because they received it last week and thanks someone else in the business for like what they did. And they tell a story and they have to tell a story. They tell a specific story and they got to link it to the value. They can use the we run hard value. They can use the never not my problem value. They can use the humility value. We have three permission to play values and three core values and they can choose from those six. And they tell a story and that's like one ritual. Every single all hands, every two weeks, there's a kudos. And it's a small one. It's a high frequency, low value form of recognition. There's also low frequency, high value forms of recognition. But the point is, you got to establish rituals. You got to be really conscious about the rituals that you establish. And then as the company gets bigger, those rituals can be localized and cascaded. And so that's how we do it. I think about each of those rituals as one turn on the screw to make sure that like the density of the culture is so strong that there is no path other than into the center of the culture when when you join the company. Other favorite rituals? Um, so we've talked about Conscious Business Reading Club. We've talked about kudos as like sort of two extremes. There's a new one we're implementing. By the end of this year, we're going to do an annual, sort of like the Oscars. And we're literally going to get everyone to dress up. We're all going to come together. And everyone who is nominated for awards across a specific set of performance and cultural categories is going to be called out And then there's one winner, and it's a big award, one winner per category. It is this really public recognition that also builds like a sense of camaraderie. So that's that's one big, low-frequency, high-value thing that we're committed to doing, like the Oscars of culture and performance every year. A second one is we do something called Rippling Wine Club. And this is about community building. It's a ritual. We Anybody who wants to sign up and come in and join, and there's a textbook that we work through, and they get to taste six different wines every week. Two from each varietal, one old world, one new world. And like, it's a bit boozy and it really doesn't look like a cultural event to anybody. It really just looks like, let's drink. But it is a fabulous community building tool where like we work stuff in. Like when I'm up there, you know, being the psalm at a particular session, as we work our way through that topic, I am interjecting, you know, examples from the business. We're having other people come up and participate. So that's another ritual that that is sort of a cultural event in disguise. Yeah, I just think you got to sprinkle it across the business with various frequencies at various altitudes and then empower your managers. I mean, your point earlier, like, I can't do all of this directly. The individual managers also develop rituals themselves, and and they're actually held explicitly accountable to that. We have a spreadsheet where people have to go in and talk about what they've done with their teams over the last month and how recognition and culture are baked into those activities. So it's it ain't haphazard. You know, it's it's got to be deliberate. Super cool. I mean, so aligned with it. We actually, we literally, one of our slide decks talks about the rituals we have at 15 and five, because I think that that the idea of it being something that self-perpetuates, right? We just did a really cool training on where our director of people science led a really cool training on strengths-based high fives. It's called strength spotting. And basically what it is, is it's actually when you give that recognition, when you give a high five, you're paying attention to the specific strengths of that person and you're naming the strength and you're naming the impact that it has. And it really illuminates because then all of a sudden we don't have as much awareness of our own genius, right? You know, and so somebody else can recognize our strength and the specific impact it had. 
and it's a game changer for recognition. So we're going to be baking that into high five soon. I love that. I mean, I think people fail to recognize that the only thing that matters is strengths. We all tend to focus on weaknesses and trying to get better at our weaknesses, but that's like expecting somebody if if you're a world class cyclist and you could you could go win the Tour de France, but you're really pissed off that you're not a good airline pilot. What the f- are you talking about? Go race bicycles. You're so good at it. Why are you so hung up on the fact that you're not good at flying airplanes? And that's what people tend to do at work. It's crazy. All right, Matt, we've got to, we've got to wrap up. We could obviously keep going on this. There's a lot more. I'm really curious about any parting words, uh, particularly for the chief people officers out there or the the cultural leaders that are trying to create systems and process that elevate the humanity while also ensuring performance. Any last words of wisdom? I think the most important thing you can do as a people leader in a business with respect to building a strong culture, not a good or a bad one, but a strong one versus a weak one, is to amplify the things about your company that are already true. Do not confuse the things you wish were true with the things that are, because nothing you say is going to change the not true things into true things. Just the same analogy, the individual who is a world-class bicyclist, but freaked out that he's not good at airplane flying. Don't tell that person to go be a pilot. Tell them to go be a cyclist. And the same is true of your company. Know who you are. Know what you're good at as a company. Know the behaviors that are the highest and best incarnation. Even if you don't like them, if you don't think they're good enough, too bad. That's what you get. Figure out what is true about your company that is good and amplify it. That is what builds strong culture, not trying to change it, you know, but to try and amplify the good parts of what's already true. I think that if every people leader understood that about the fundamental nature of culture building, we would have a lot less sort of vapid conversation about culture in Silicon Valley, and we would have companies that performed better and frankly, less less entitlement. <laughs> all right, one last question. This is, we ask this to all our guests. So as you know, 15.5, we have a weekly check-in that's based on questions. What should we ask our employees next week? Do you know your towering strength? And if so, what is it? Nice, love it, love it. It's a great question. Matt, this is fantastic. I am, I'm feeling super energized after this conversation. It's, it's uh, always great to meet someone and talk with someone who's so aligned and, and doing these things inside of, of clearly a really high-performing culture and company. So thanks for sharing your wisdom. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you to our producer, Counterweight Creative, to our executive producer, David Misney, and guest coordinators, Sydney Lee and Suzanne Haight. One of the easiest things you can do to help us spread the message of being and becoming your best self at work is to write a review on Apple Podcasts or just share this episode's link on your favorite social media channel. If you have any questions or comments, please email me and Shane at podcast at 15.5.com. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, thank you. Thank you.